0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. As is our custom here at Rocky Mount Bible Church, we devote the entirety of the Advent season to being reminded, as Scripture reminds us often, of the significance of Jesus' first coming. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel and a few other passages here and there, highlighting what it is that Jesus has done In his first advent, I've been asking myself all week what kind of story is the story of Jesus' birth? What kind of story is it? A couple of years ago, we made the decision in our house to cancel cable. So we get the local channels and we have Netflix and all the rest. That wasn't a holy decision. I just, you know, we're still watching plenty of TV. But channels we don't have anymore, we don't have the Hallmark Channel, we don't have Lifetime. Which means, fortunately for myself, I'm no longer subjected to a long list of movies with the exact same premise. (laughs) And you know how this works. There's a young woman, a professional in the big city, but life is unfulfilling. So she goes back home to visit her parents who need some kind of help at the holidays, only to discover a man in dire opposition to the slick uh, city dweller that she left behind, uh, maybe a mechanic of some sort or a lumberjack, as anyone who wears a voluminous amount of flannel day after day and he's ruggedly handsome and surprisingly clever and I don't wanna ruin this for you, they fall in love. And, and she realizes that all of the things that she missed the most in the city Oh, those aren't the things she really likes. What she really likes is Christmas in the country. And that's where they're going to spend every Christmas for years and years to follow. That, that's the story. I know that you're familiar with that particular narrative. And we know that story because we've seen it play out over and over again. There's no tension left in that story because we know how it ends. We know in every single one of those movies exactly how it's going to end. And so we get one romantic comedy after another. And I think the problem for a lot of believers, especially at Christmas time, is we know how the story is going to end. And we've become so familiar with that story. We've become so inundated, some of us for years or even decades, with how that story ends and all of the hope and all of the glory and all of the majesty and all of the joy, that it would be easy to think of this as a story with no tension whatsoever. So when I sit at my desk this week and I ask the question, what kind of story is this? And start at the very beginning. Start not from how I know it will end, but the situation that each one of these people found themselves in at the start of it. You know, it really reads more like, well, not not quite a tragedy, but like an epic. Great movements in history are happening in these stories. Great grand figures, men and women of radical obedience in dire and tragic circumstances come to fruition right here in a passage that's intensely familiar to us. What kind of a story is it? It's a story about an exceedingly dark world that has thrust upon it an unquenchable light that brings hope to people in dire circumstances. In that way, it's an epic. And that's why we've named the series what it is, until the sun appears. Oh come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appears. Christmas is not for believers, just a small, tidy story of happy things. Christmas is hope. Hope for those who are living good days. Hope for those who are living bad days. Hope for all who realize that the world is not yet the way it will be when Jesus comes again. It wasn't before his first coming, and it's not now near prior to his second (laughs) And what we find here, starting in Matthew 1, verse 18, is the story of Joseph, a man in desperate need of hope. And his son is about to appear. We find in verse 18, it's the same passage we read earlier this morning. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew setting the stage for us. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they were living together, before they had ever known each other in a biblical sense, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. A couple of observations there. Now, you'll remember in the first part of chapter one, if you've ever read that before, and I know that many of you have been exposed to it, because we've talked about it in a number of times we have a protracted genealogy. That's how Matthew starts off the book. He wants you to know that this child who is about to be born, he has royal credentials. Promises have been made. The Old Testament is replete with them. And shining, maybe near the apogee of all of those promises, is this one. There's going to come a child, and that child from the line of David is going to rule on his grandfather's throne in peace and in justice forever. That's the promise. And Matthew works through the first half of this chapter, establishing those credentials. Jesus has all of the rights to rule on David's throne. And now he pivots. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He starts by setting the stage with uh, two pieces of background information. First, we have a young man named Joseph, and Joseph is betrothed to a young woman named Mary. Um, Betrothal worked a little bit differently in the ancient world than it does today. When I asked Laura to marry me, we were engaged, I think it was the week before Thanksgiving. Um, I asked her dad for permission. He said yes, cautiously, I think, (laughs) Uh, we got engaged. Uh, we got married in March of the next year. And then we lived together. And a year after that, uh, we uh, got pregnant with a baby. And nine months after that, we had a baby. And that's how that worked. In the ancient world, it worked a little differently. Joseph would have been a little older. Now, when I say a little older, we know that the average lifespan for most people, blue-collar workers in the Middle East, 2,000 years ago, was about 40 years. So a little older early to mid-twenties, somewhere probably in that ballpark. And Mary is a little bit younger. She's maybe 12, 13, 14, somewhere in that range. And they have been betrothed to each other. Their parents have come together and said, we approve of their future marriage. And so they are not just engaged, they were betrothed. They were legally in union together. And if they were going to break apart They would have had to have a legal divorce recognized by the community. Betrothal was much more binding in the first century than engagement is today. If I had said to Laura, hey, uh, after our engagement, but before our marriage, hey, um, you know, your cookies are terrible and um, I just don't like your face anymore, right? She could have given me the ring back and it would have been over, no big deal. Now, I didn't. I begged her every day to stay with me until I finally locked that deal down we signed the papers, but (laughs) it's possible. Not the way it worked in the first century. They were legally in union. Now, they didn't live together yet, and, and they weren't sleeping with each other yet. That's an important part of this story. Mary has never known a man, but they're engaged. They're together. They're betrothed. Legally, they are one. That's the first piece of background information. And the second is, Mary has just become pregnant. She's just become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, we're told. She's never known a man, she's never known this future husband, her betrothed Joseph, she's never been touched by a man, but this is a pure virgin, now impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's much purer than the stories we get from the ancient world. If you take any amount of time and read from Greek or Roman literature, you'll find that all of Uh, those cultures had stories of deities coming to earth in various forms and finding beautiful women of humanity and impregnating them, and they're all terribly crass and vile things happen. And it's not the way at all that we find this described here in Scripture. Mary is impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's miraculous and it's pure. And we learn something already about Joseph. Joseph is an upstanding guy. He's proven to himself and to Mary's parents at least that he's good enough to be betrothed to their beautiful daughter. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing, his entire world is about to come crashing down. And here we get the tension Here we get the sense of consequence of the events that are about to happen here in Joseph's life. Because in verse 19 we read this, And her husband Joseph, being a just and unwilling to put her to shame, a just man unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph's character really starts to shine through here. He's called a just man. Some of your translations will translate that a righteous man. Now, uh, what we're not saying in the context of that term used here in Matthew 1 is not saying that Joseph is a perfect man, that uh, somehow he's better than all the other men around him, that he's been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're not saying that. We're just saying that he's an upstanding man who listens to the law of God and obeys what he's been called to do. But he does an incredible thing. Here's his legal rights. You remember we went through the book of Deuteronomy really just a few months ago. In Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24, we find a very small passage there where it talks about the exact situation that Joseph finds himself in. What happens when you're betrothed to a young woman and she gets pregnant out of wedlock and you're not the father? Here's what the legal option that he has available to him is. He can bring her to the elders of the village in which they live. There will be a very excruciating and public trial to determine what she has done. And having been found guilty by the child now growing in her belly, she'll be taken out to a small ledge on the outside of the city and stoned to death. He has every legal right to do so. But he makes two decisions. One, he's not going to appeal that she be killed. He has no desire whatsoever to cause <coughs> injurious harm to this young woman. And two, he doesn't just divorce her. He divorces her, you know what the sex says? Quietly. Now I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a moment. And I want you to imagine in a high honor culture that you have done everything exactly the right way, just like you should have. And your betrothed, your future wife, the one who will hold your home and bear your children, has just become pregnant and you're not the father. And pretty soon, everyone is going to know your family and her family, the priests and the scribes and the teachers and everyone in the worshiping community together, you can hardly imagine a day that could go by where Joseph wouldn't know the overwhelming shame of that particular situation. And yet, you know what? Even though what has happened with Mary is causing him shame? He's trying to protect her from the shame of a public trial. What does it say about the kindness and the compassion of somebody like Joseph? He, he's not just a good guy, an upstanding guy. He's a compassionate guy. Instead of starting a protracted trial and grinding Mary through the intensity of the harshness of a legal He settles out of court. Now, we know from reading Luke chapter 1 that Mary is an exceedingly godly girl. I think he knew that. Don't you? It was evident to everyone around her that she was one who was well-versed in what the scriptures had to say about who God was and what God was doing. Next week when we read the Magnificat, Mary's song. We're going to see her explain some of what she knows about who God is and what he's doing. I think Joseph knows too. I think it's fair to say that he knows that she is a godly girl and I think it's fair to conjecture, and I'll put this out there for you, I think that he loves her. I think that he's in love with her. And so he's putting her away quietly. Joseph is compassionate And even though he's about to endure this season of shame, he's doing everything in his power to save Mary from that exact same shame. Extraordinary. Things are not getting better yet for Joseph. Things have only gotten miserably worse. But then this happens in verse 20. But as he considered these things, as he's pondering them over, as he's laying awake at night in his bed, sweating through his sheets, thinking about this situation that has been thrust upon him an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and again this happens throughout the text it's one of the great ways that God has communicated with the saints throughout scripture saying Joseph son of David he starts by identifying who Joseph is Joseph is a part of the line of David it's through him that the Messiah from David's line will come there's uh, honor in this already Three things happening there. Of course, he identifies who Joseph is, and then he gives him a command. Take Mary as your wife. Now, the gall of this angel. <laughs> Wait, don't, don't, don't you know here? I, I mean, I, I remember that story about Hosea, but are you really doubling up on that exact same theme? You're asking me to marry this young girl? Is that what you're saying? And, and I am not the father right? We've been through the Maury show-like situation here. It is not my child. And the angel says, no, 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 you don't understand. This child, this child of hers is from the Holy Spirit. It's God's doing. It's miraculous, child. How much faith would you need to believe what the angel was telling you? Joseph is a man of remarkable faith. He's an upstanding man. He's a compassionate man. He's a faithful man. Take Mary as your wife. Joseph doesn't have to fear. He only has to believe that the angel is telling the truth when he says that Mary's conception is miraculous. Now, that requires an extraordinary amount of faith. And if that wasn't enough, here's the kicker. And oh, by the way, Joseph, it's not just that she's pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, the one that she's pregnant with is the Messiah. Wait. Now, you, you, you already asked me for a little faith now you're asking for a whole lot of faith you mean that not, not only is she by some divine circumstance pregnant she's pregnant with the one who would rule on David's throne is that what you're telling me yes that's exactly what I'm telling you more faith required period And then he goes on to say, and this is how he concludes this little uh, vision here to Joseph. He says four things about this child. Now, I, I don't give you notes during Advent, but if you're one of those people who writes in your Bible, let me encourage you to write a couple of these down. This is important that we understand exactly what he's saying about who this child is who will come for the people. First, she shall bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. You will call his name Jesus. Now, uh, we've talked about the significance of names in the Bible before. You know that hardly anyone was named for a reason that didn't mean something to them or their family. Even in our house, we have two daughters, right? Annabelle Ruth is named for Mary Ruth, my wife's grandmother. And uh, Gracie is named Grace Helen because my grandmother's name is Helen. Now, that made things awkward in our house because when she was little and and she would get in trouble, I would go, Grace Helen! Grace Helen! And then I immediately felt guilty because it felt like I was yelling at grandma, right? And it just seemed wrong. I just couldn't do it. Grace Helen, stop sticking M&Ms up your nose. Grace Helen, stop putting your toys into the gallon of milk. Stop, you know. Names had meaning. And Jesus' name is no exception to that in the New Testament world. Jesus' name means something like Yeshua. God is salvation or God saves God is the savior something along those lines so the very first thing we learn about who this child will be we know that even in his name there is an indication of his mission he is coming to save his people This child that will be born of David's line, who will rule on David's throne, who will rule in perfect peace and justice, will also rule in such a way as to redeem his chosen people. That's the first thing we learn about this child. Secondly, he will save the people from their sins. He will save the people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus, he will save them from their sins. Now this is where it gets interesting because here's where we get to some of the distinctive features of Christianity. Here's where this story becomes distinctive to our particular faith. Now, what he's done already, Matthew chapter one, we've barely gotten into the book. He's told us what the problem is and he's told us who the solution is. And those are two radical pieces of information that you need to grow in the faith. He's told us that the problem is sin. Not every religion agrees that sin is the problem. Uh, We have friends who are Hindu. They believe in karma, that if you are better in this life than you were in the past, that you will be reincarnated in higher and higher ways. We have friends who are Buddhist, who believe that there will eventually be for those who are able to release from themselves desire, a kind of karma from samsara, this repeated cycle of rebirth and rebirth and death and rebirth. They don't believe that sin is the problem. Our friends who are atheists don't believe that sin is the problem. In fact, they wouldn't agree that there may be a problem at all, right? You were not born through the mind and heart of a creator. You are the random result of stardust. There is no hope, there is no problem, there is no solution. There is nothing after you die. This is it. Sin isn't the problem. There are even those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ who would argue against the proposition that sin is the problem. You know, I rag on some of our prosperity gospel friends. But for them, for some of those who are on television, maybe you're familiar with their great ministries and they're always talking about how God wants to bless you if you listen to them really carefully they do not believe that sin is our problem solved by a savior they believe that poverty is our problem solved by a cosmic ATM (laughs) who has come not to fill your heart with righteousness but has come to fill your wallet with dead presidents (laughs) sin is the problem He tells us sin is the problem. And then he tells us what the solution is. Jesus is the solution. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because there are other religions that agree with us that sin is the problem. Judaism believes that sin is the problem. Islam believes that sin is the problem. But in both of those great monotheistic religions, their solution to that problem is within yourself. You are the solution. You save yourself by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and trying to be righteous enough to appease a holy God. Matthew says already here, very first chapter of Matthew, he has come to save the people from their sins. The implication being that he's the solution, that the people can't save themselves from their own sin. And so Matthew has framed here already who this child is. Number one, right? He's told us that his name will be Jesus. God is salvation. Number two, he's framed for us both the problem, sin, and the solution, Jesus. Number three, he's the fulfillment of a specific messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, in Isaiah, maybe more than any other of the Old Testament prophets, has a lot to say, about who the Messiah will be when he finally shows up. There's this figure that we talk about, the Messiah, this one who is promised, who's going to come and deliver the Jewish people. And he's going to deliver them in power and justice and peace. Isaiah has a lot of these prophecies. In Isaiah chapter seven, we find this one. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, if we had more time, and we'll save this for another sermon we would talk about that word virgin. In the Old Testament Hebrew, it's Alma, right? It can be used of a young maiden like it was there in Isaiah, or it can be used in a prophetic sense of this virgin Mary who gives birth to Jesus. There are multiple fulfillments of this particular messianic prophecy. But the point that the author is trying to make is that one that you've been waiting for, that one that here for eight centuries you have been longing for, To deliver you from sin? To deliver you from the Romans? To deliver you into peace? To deliver you into righteousness? Joseph, this is him. The one that you've been waiting for is finally here. His name will be Jesus. God is salvation. He's going to save people from their sins. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And finally, he's the God-man. You shall call his name Emmanuel. And I love here parenthetically, if you don't know what that means, Matthew tells us. God with us different from every other religion on the planet instead of man working his way to God, God becomes man to draw man to himself totally unique among all the religious histories of the world uh, the old Carolina preacher J. Vernon McGee said it this way, Jesus brought divinity to earth and humanity to heaven He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. So these are the four things that he lays out here to Joseph in this dream about who this child will be. So Joseph needs an extraordinary amount of faith. Mary is pregnant, and I promise you, the angel says, it is a work of God miraculous. And number two, not only is he this miraculous child and that he's been conceived without a father, a human father, an important lesson we'll come back to next week when we talk about Mary. But he's the Messiah, plenipotentiary, with all the rights and authority and, of the one who would come and rule on David's throne. Now, here's what's remarkable about Joseph Joseph is faithful, Joseph trusts in the Lord. Joseph's journey will not be easy again it's a story with tension it hasn't been resolved for joseph yet it's not going to play out in a 90 minute movie for him it's not going to be a 30 minute sermon where we get to the conclusion and everything has been set right it's going to be his life his whole life is going to be this his existence on this ball of dirt and water this is it He has just started on the epic journey that will require faith to the very end. And he doesn't yet know exactly what that means for him. He doesn't know how all of this precisely is going to turn out. But he moves forward in faith. And hope is starting to dawn on the story of Joseph. Now, what does he do? The angel's come. He's had the dream. What does he do in response? Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. They got married. They started living together under one roof. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, a couple of interesting things there. We've talked about how he's an upstanding man and he is, and that's proof. The angel says to marry her, and he does. He wants there to be no confusion whatsoever about who the father is, and so even though he's caring for her and they're living together, he doesn't touch her, which in itself requires a courageous amount of strength, I would think, a young man and his young wife. But he is concerned with this truth that we know this is a divine child with divine commissions and divine work laying ahead of him. Again, and something that we'll talk about in a little more depth next week, we know that for Jesus to be able to save the people from from their sins, he must be sinless. That he must resist all temptations, and even more than that, he must be born without a sinful nature. Now, something that's true of every person who has ever been born except for Jesus is that we have all been born with a sinful nature. From our fathers, starting with Adam, all the way down, we have inherited a nature that is contrary to the will of God. Even the very best people you've ever known The the sweet old lady who lives next door and only bakes chocolate chip cookies and adopts blind kittens, right? That lady. As nice as she is, sinful nature, in need of a savior to deliver her from an eternity apart from a holy God. That's the problem. Jesus is the solution. And if Jesus had had an earthly father he would have been born with that sinful nature. A sinful Savior can't save anyone from their sins. So not only will we find the testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus never succumbed to temptation, but he wasn't even born with a sinful nature. He's qualified. His qualifications are dripping on every verse of Matthew chapter 1. I'll give you a little heads up. If you read the rest of the book, it stays on theme. (laughs) Nowhere do we find anywhere in Matthew's gospel a, a single sentence that would implicate Jesus as being anything less than Emmanuel, God with us. So Joseph is obedient. And this is what we know about him. At this moment in the epic when he's been given every good reason to walk away, Joseph stays, he does what he's told. In the midst of circumstances as trying as he'll ever face in the middle of his most difficult season and his most difficult week and what may maybe the most difficult day of his life, Joseph stands firm and does what God has called him to do. Joseph is obedient. He's an upstanding man. He's a faithful man. He's a compassionate man. He's a man of God. Now we ask what kind of story is this? And I I sat on the couch last night and thought about this and I thought about this all week. And Don't be mistaken. This isn't a story about Joseph. It's really not. Joseph is an incredible man. But this isn't Joseph's story. That's not a story about a good guy. Also, It's not a story about what happens to Joseph as he's thrust into the mire of circumstances beyond his control. It's not a story about a guy who emerges victorious from a situation that would level lesser men. It's not a story about the shame and the tension and the guilt and the frustration and the not knowing what is about to happen next that would have plagued That's not really the story either. This is a story about hope. It's a story about hope in Joseph's life. It's a story about what God is doing in the life of this, here in chapter one of Matthew, in the life of this otherwise unknown figure in history named Joseph. This is a story about how God plucked Joseph from the margins of obscurity and gave him a task worthy of changing history. And it's a story about how God took a little Middle Eastern carpenter and made him worthy by the blood of his stepson to sit at the table of our God and king. It's a God story. It's a hope story. It's not about what Joseph does. It's about what God is doing in and through Joseph. It's a hope story, and in that way, it's a story about you. What's happening with you is not altogether different from what's happening to Joseph. Now, I I never have had a dream in which I was confronted by an angel. That's never happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. I'd love to hear about that. But it's never happened to me. I've never uh, been told that the one to whom I was betrothed, the Holy Spirit and Savior and all of that, right? I dream about weird things. Saturday nights, I dream about getting to church on Sunday morning and not being able to find my notes or that my pants are really wrinkled, right? (laughs) These are the kinds of weird things I dream about. That all of a sudden, I forgot how to speak English, this is the kinds of weird stuff but our stories are not altogether different from Joseph's story we were unknown lost in our sin separated from a holy God long lay the world the hymn writer says the carol writer in sin and error pining pining just like Joseph Longing, just like Joseph. Our problem, the same as his problem, and our solution the same as his, his child come to save us from our sins. And now we get to respond to that same news in remarkable faith. You're being asked to respond in the exact same way that Joseph was. Will you be obedient? Will you share the good news of who this child is? Will you maintain with a fierce intensity that he is exactly who the angel told Joseph he was 2,000 years ago? And will you hold on to the hope of the promise that he can save us from our sins? You see, it's not a story that's unique to Joseph. It's the story of everyone who has yielded in repentance and responded in faith to the call to follow Jesus Christ. It's a story of hope, and it's a story of hope for every person in this room, for every person on the planet. One has come Jesus, God as Savior, to bring us back to Him. It's not a light story. It's not the kind of story that people would really like on Hallmark. It doesn't film well for a lifetime. It's a story for people who have great hope and also a story for people who feel hopeless because the light has come in a very dark world and its beauty and its illumination is escapable. There is hope. Hope is dawning. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to remember the hope that we have in the coming of Jesus Christ that can change our lives just as dramatically as it has changed the life of Joseph. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.